Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'm speaking with award-winning author Jacqueline Jones, the Ellen C. Temple Chair in Women's History at the University of Texas. We will be discussing her most recent book, Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons, American Radical, published by Basic Books. The riveting life of Lucy Parsons, activist, writer, and speaker, reflects the most radical expression of the battle for labor rights in American history. Yet, she remains a mystery. Born an enslaved woman in 1851 of mixed lineage, the circumstances of her birth and early life were unknown. Exceedingly beautiful and articulate, she met and married Albert Parsons, a Confederate Army veteran in Waco, Texas in 1872. Their politics shifted from loyal Republicans to socialism to finally anarchism, advocating for white labor in Chicago. As a dynamic and radical duo engaged in extensive writing, charismatic speaking, and alliances across multiple labor organizations, they became symbols of unrelenting agitation against industrial capitalism. Their calls for armed resistance and involvement with the Haymarket riot and trial led to the execution of Albert, leaving Lucy Parsons to carry their mutual legacy alone. Jones has brought to life an enigmatic figure whose compelling presence left a mark on the history of the radical movement for labor rights. This is my conversation with Jacqueline Jones. Let me introduce you to Jacqueline Jones. Hello, Jacqueline. Hello. Uh, welcome to the show. And you've written about a very fascinating person, Lucy Parson. But before we get into her and all her, her very fascinating life, tell us how you came to write this book and why, why Lucy Parsons. Well, I teach the American History Survey to undergraduates, and I'm always looking to introduce them to interesting women in the past. And I always found Lucy Parsons fascinating, if somewhat enigmatic. And I decided that it was time to revisit her. Her first and only biography was written in 1976 by Carolyn Ashbaugh. And I thought, given all the new resources we have today, all the new digital and online resources, it was really time to revisit her and to um, make her life story more full, to examine her origins, and um, put her into a broader context of her um, time, her, her life and time. You know, she was born in 1851 and died in 1942. So her lifespan covers slavery, the Civil War, Reconstruction, the populist era, the progressive age, on into World War I, the Red Scare, the 1920s, uh, the New Deal, and um, really there at the beginning of World War II. So that's quite a, um, quite a long span, a long lifespan. And uh, to look at the history of the country through the lens of Lucy Parsons, I think was a really interesting thing to do. Well, tell us first about where she came from, her, where she was born, her parents. What do we know about her? Well, that was one thing I found out uh, in doing this biography. Her earlier biographer had not been able to locate the information about her birth, her birthplace, her parents. She was born in 1851 in Virginia to an enslaved woman named Charlotte uh, they were the slaves of a white man, T.J. Tolliver. And sometime during the Civil War, I think around 1862 or 1863, Tolliver removed the whole plantation uh, to Texas. And he did that for uh, a number of reasons, I think. He had been a Confederate surgeon, had been captured, had served as a prisoner of war. Then he was released and 
under the condition of his parole, he was not allowed to go back into Confederate service. He and other uh, slave owners thought that slavery would always exist in Texas. They thought that the state was uh, far removed from uh, Washington, D.C., that federal forces couldn't really launch a campaign against the state, and that even if the Confederacy lost, that somehow slavery would remain in Texas. So that helps to account for the influx of slave owners into the state uh, during the war. Some of them, too, were trying to avoid what were called Confederate impressment agents. Those were people who uh, told planters that they should give over their enslaved laborers for a certain amount of time in the service of the Confederacy. And it's really striking to note how many slave owners resisted that demand. And some went to great lengths to avoid it, uh, and, and some, as I said, by actually moving to another part of the Confederacy, in this case, the state of Texas. So um, just to finish her biography, her early years, uh, Lucy Parsons was brought to Texas. Uh, her mother, her, one of her younger brothers, there was another brother born soon after they arrived in Texas. And uh, right after the Civil War, the family moved to Waco in McLennan County, which is a small town. But at the time, it was seen as um, a refuge for enslaved people, formerly enslaved people who were fleeing the violence of the countryside. So by 1865, uh, Lucy Parsons, uh, actually her name was Lucia Carter uh, at that point. That made it difficult to find her. But uh, she and her mother and two younger brothers were living in Waco by that time. Now, what kind of place was Waco? Because that, that first chapter where you talk about Waco was a... Uh, a lot going on there politically. There- yes, well, it was a, a what I call a wide open town. It was uh, a crossroads in central Texas. The uh, Chisholm Trail ran through it, uh, so lots of uh, stock owners were um, uh, bringing their cattle up through Texas on the way to Kansas City and other places. Uh, and also, um, there were some uh, planters to the east who were growing cotton and bringing cotton into Waco to be shipped elsewhere. So um, it it was a, an interesting town because it, on the one hand, had a very respectable uh, middle class, the bankers, the insurance agents. Uh, on the other hand, it had uh, these itinerant cowboys, cowhands coming in, and a whole um, illicit economy grew up in Waco, illegal gambling and drinking. Um, so it was quite the um, western frontier town. <laughs> I think. Yeah, notice, yeah, there's a lot of guns slinging around. <laughs> it seemed like people, guns were popular. Yes, they were. And this, actually, a lot of that gunfire was trained on the former slaves. Uh, Central Texas was known as a really violent place after the Civil War. A lot of domestic terrorism aimed at formerly enslaved people, trying to keep them in their place, trying to keep them hard at work for their former masters. So uh, it really was a very uh, bloody place. And as I said, uh, this small family, uh, Charlotte and her three children, felt that they were much better off in the town of Waco than on the countryside during these years. Okay, so Lucy, uh, at that time, is Lucia? Is it Lucia? Yes, that's how she's recorded in the 1870 census. She's living in a tenement with her mother in another apartment. She's living with a baby that she has just had and with at least two other formerly enslaved people. But she does uh, give her name as Lucia Carter. Carter was the last name of her mother's new husband. Her mother married a man named Charlie Carter right after she moved to Waco, and uh, the kids took his last name. Now, much of Lucy's life is tied up with her husband, Albert Parson. How did Albert Parsons get to Waco? He was a formal Confederate uh, in the Confederacy in the Army, right? 
Yes, uh, Albert had a very interesting life. He was born in 1845 in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, he was the younger brother of William H. Parsons, who became uh, a well-known Confederate officer during the Civil War. Albert was only a teenager when he joined the Army. He went off to war. He served as a scout uh, for his brother and returned to Waco in 1865, uh, where his sister lived. And he actually began boarding with his sister at that point. He and Lucy met sometime probably around 1868 or 1869. She went to one of the very first freedmen's in Waco, that is the schools that were established for the former slaves to teach them how to read and write. And um, yeah, I figured that they traveled in similar circles. Albert uh, renounced his Confederate um, allegiance and he became an organizer for the Republican Party, which at that time was a very dangerous thing to do in Texas. And he spent uh, his time trying to get former slaves um, to vote, to exercise their new right after 1867. And she, uh, as a student in one of these freedmen schools, would have had connections with many prominent Republicans in Waco, including the schoolmaster uh, there who taught her. So it's not... Um, it's not an impossible to think of a situation where uh, the two of them met, since I think they did know uh, a number of people in common. Now, their marriage was rather unusual because there were some multiple complications, including Oliver Benton. <laughs> yes, he was uh, an, a formerly enslaved man who lived in Waco, and he claimed that he had married Lucy, Lucia Carter, when she was a teenager, and that they had had a child together. And I do know that she did have a baby named Champ. Uh, he's listed in the 1870 census, and there are other references to him as well. He died when he was an infant, uh, as far as I can tell. But Oliver also later recounted finding Lucy in the company of Albert Parsons, and um, obviously being very distressed at that site. And so uh, there was, I think, a certain amount of drama surrounding um, Lucy's love life at that point. She, uh, throughout her life, took multiple lovers, and she learned early on that um, many people, black and white, young and old, male and female, male and female, considered her very beautiful. And uh, I think she used that to her advantage at times. Yeah, because uh, the picture of her on the cover of your book, she was she was beautiful, and she was of mixed race. And how did that go over with? Uh, Albert Parsons marrying a, uh, he's a white man, marrying this mixed-raced woman. How was yes. that viewed in Waco? Well, not favorably, I must say. Uh, these um, Certainly, it was not uh, so unusual for men and women of different races to have relationships, but getting married was quite a different thing. And I found out that Albert was very savvy. Uh, the Republicans controlled Texas politics for just, oh, uh, a little over a year there, around 1872, 1873. And while they did have control of state politics, they looked upon interracial marriage more favorably than the Democrats did. So Albert and Lucy actually got married in September of 1872. Their marriage was formalized. It was legal. It was performed, I think, probably by the mayor of Waco, who was a Republican and a friend of Albert's at the time. But by 1873, when the Democrats came back in power, the chance for interracial couples to marry really receded. And that's when we find the two of them really fleeing to Chicago because they realize they have um, they don't have much of a future in Texas at that point. Now, Albert was really involved in Republican politics in Texas. And uh, what were his motivations? It, it, and and it, it seemed like they weren't necessarily just purely that he wanted to help black uh, people, you know, register to vote and vote. Uh, he seemed to have some designs. Do we know? 
We don't know, and we can only speculate. He undertook a very dangerous mission, which was to organize black voters in central Texas in the mid and late 1860s. And this, as I said, was a very violent time. Um, White men who aligned themselves with black voters were targets uh, for uh, other white men, for former Confederates. So it took a lot of guts. But I did discover that Albert um, believed himself to have really tremendous uh, oratorical powers. He was a great speaker, and he loved to get up on a bale of cotton or the back of a wagon and speechify for hours on end. Uh, He felt he um, had uh, influence over people when he did this, and he became outspoken in his support for Black civil rights during this period, again, which took a lot of nerve, it took a lot of courage. What casts some doubt on his principles, I think, is the fact that when the couple moved to Chicago in 1873, they both of them really abandoned any interest in African-American civil rights in the plight of uh, impoverished African, African-Americans in Chicago. Uh, Albert and Lucy turned their attention to the white laboring classes, the immigrants, and really had absolutely no sympathy, from what I can tell, uh, toward black people. So that makes me think that uh, Albert was a very ambitious person. He saw a political career for himself sometime in the future. He felt that his speaking abilities were the key to that future. And he did uh, go on to be very prominent in Chicago, first as a socialist and then as an anarchist, using those um, those rhetorical abilities. He, when, when Lucy and Albert uh, moved to Chicago, he abandons Republican politics for socialism. Oh, they do together. And it's it, and this is when you begin to see how much Actually, it seems like they were, you know, came out of the same mold. They're very similar in terms of uh, their uh, rhetoric and what they, you know, that they both could speak. They both were uh, really ideologues in a certain way, but I'm not sure if they were ideologues or whether they were just uh, political performers. (laughs) You know, they were highly... Well, they did. They did believe in putting on a good political performance. I do think, you know, one key here is the fact that the Parsons really settled among uh, German immigrants in Chicago. They, um, I think, made connections in Texas. Uh, German Americans were a key part of the Republican constituency in Texas during the Civil War era. I think uh, Albert learned to speak German in Texas, and he probably had a connection that helped him to find this new home in Chicago in a German immigrant neighborhood. And Germans were uh, radical during this period. Uh, socialists uh, had come from um, their native country. They were persecuted there, had moved to the United States, and were trying to implement uh, their ideas in this country, those ideas were very much focused on the urban laboring classes. And it is true, I think, that Lucy and Albert were soulmates in, um, if we can use that word, that they were very much in sync when it came to believing um, that the laboring classes were exploited, that uh, technology was making inroads into the workplace and that many people were losing their jobs and soon the capitalist system would collapse under its own weight. I, I can see the outline certainly of their broad vision. And as well, both of them believed that trade unions were really the key to a just society, that people should join voluntarily in these unions according to their skills, and that these would be cooperative groups. They would not depend on wages or any kind of competition, but that these uh, new groups would replace the capitalist society that had been destroyed uh, by a revolution. Now, they went to Chicago. What year was that? 
I think it was in the winter of 1873. 1872. Okay. Uh, can you describe what's going on in Chicago in 1872, what that city's like? Because there's a lot going on. 1872-73, yes. Uh, well, when they arrived, um, in the fall of 1873, there had been a banking crisis, which had caused a recession throughout the country, and a lot of men and women were thrown out of work. So when the Parsons arrived in Chicago, they were greeted by tremendous demonstrations of hungry and jobless men. They quickly learned that these men were victims of uh, larger economic forces over which they seemed to have no control, that this was all very unjust. And uh, both Lucy and Albert really threw themselves into as I said, this radical movement, which at the time was dominated by German-American socialists. Now, they, there, was also, there was a lot of friction between labor, uh, which was a huge immigrant population. I think it's, you were talking something like 50% of Chicago was immigrants? Uh, yeah. Yes, a large percentage, certainly. Okay, and so you've got this uh, tension between them and the business leaders. Um, how did Lucy... Uh, characterize her background. She she began to give a story about who she was in Chicago. Well, I first have to um, say that she studied on her own. She um, read voraciously. Remember, she had maybe two or three years at the most of formal schooling. She was quite brilliant in the way she was able to um, become a very uh, compelling writer on her own. But she did not really introduce herself to a larger public until after Albert was incarcerated. So I should back up just a moment and say that by 1884, both Lucy and Albert had decided that the socialist movement was too moderate, too conservative. They wanted to turn their backs on electoral politics. They thought that was a corrupt system. They embraced anarchism and, uh, and, and really cut their ties with many of their old socialist friends in the process. Albert started a new paper called The Alarm. Lucy wrote for that. But um, Albert uh, was caught up in the Haymarket affair. That was a demonstration that anarchists organized in the evening of May 4th, 1886. And the rally was to protest the uh, shooting uh, by Chicago police of uh, workers a couple nights before who had been on strike. In the course of this rally at Haymarket, um, several Anarchists gave speeches, including Albert, but he had left the square. By the time um, police entered the square, shots were fired. Seven policemen were killed. At least four other people were killed and countless others wounded. Um, This was the famous Haymarket Affair, where the identity of the bomb thrower Uh, the person who caused uh, all the shooting uh, to begin with, the identity of the bomb thrower has never uh, been revealed. We're not sure who that is. We do know that these policemen in reacting to the bomb thrower began to shoot wildly, which I think accounts for several, if not all of the deaths. But in any case, the authorities already had uh, Albert Parsons in their crosshairs. He was by this time a very well-known speaker and agitator, and they arrested him and several other uh, comrades, uh, almost all of them German-born, and uh, accused them of conspiring to murder police in Haymarket Square that night. Uh, There was a huge trial. It was um, patently unfair. The judge was biased. The jury was biased to begin with. And... um, Seven men were eventually convicted uh, of conspiracy, Albert among them. Well, right after the conviction, uh, Lucy uh, launched a national speaking tour. And she did that in order to raise money for the defense, for her husband and his comrades who were in the county jail uh, and uh, awaiting execution. That was their sentence. Although uh, two of them... um, 
were later given uh, uh, jail sentences, and one committed suicide in jail, leaving four uh, who were executed in November of 1887. But when Lucy began her national speaking tour, she introduced herself to a larger public by claiming that she was born of Hispanic and Native American parents. In other words, she concocted a new identity for herself in order to deflect attention from what some considered her her appearance, which to some people she looked black, but to many people she was of indeterminate origin. So I think she wanted to gain credibility with a white laboring classes, and she felt she could do it by um, taking on this new identity. Now, let's back up a little bit. Uh, when they go to Chicago, there's a, uh, in the late uh, 19th century, there's a lot of labor uh, organizations and movements coming and going and uh, all kinds of coalitions and, and alliances and, and, and battles and uh, competition for this working class. How did they fit in among all those organizations? Well, the Parsons as socialists were... Uh, very keen on adopting what we might call European-style tactics of labor organizing. They had denounced the church. They denounced all institutions, American institutions. um, And that did not go over very well with the native-born white laboring classes who felt that was a very unpatriotic stance. Uh, This is a period when workers are very much divided by religion, by gender, by race. And so it it was a very contentious uh, atmosphere. Uh, The great labor strike, the great railroad strike of the summer of 1877 seemed to bring people together because that was a a pretty much a general strike in Chicago during uh, a week in July. And uh, the authorities reacted with such force. Uh, Federal troops were called in, the Illinois National Guard, private security forces, the local police. The sheer firepower brought to bear on striking workers who were armed really with nothing more than bricks or baseball bats uh, is quite striking. And out of that particular strike and the conflicts that week grew um, a narrative that the Parsons and the socialists uh, embraced, which was that the authorities were well-armed and were willing to use the firepower at their disposal to break up even peaceful meetings. So it was incumbent on the laboring classes to arm themselves, to protect themselves. And soon in the late 1870s, early 1880s, Albert and others are really using the language of force. In other words, um, workers must arm themselves. They must be prepared to do battle with authorities. When Albert becomes an anarchist, he and Lucy uh, together both talk about the use of dynamite, that Dynamite is a great leveling force here. It's available to ordinary people. It's going to help them counter the cannon and the Gatling guns used by the uh, authorities. So there is a a lot of talk about um, force, violence. Uh, Certainly the authorities are saying that what the workers need uh, is a good rifle diet. That was the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad who said um, workers needed a railroad, uh, a rifle diet. And uh, the, the press in Chicago piled on saying that, you know, police should use um, all, all weapons at their disposal to counter this great threat. The irony, of course, is that by the mid-1880s, the anarchists are really just a handful of men and women in Chicago. Their numbers are very small, but their voice is very loud because of papers like Albert's Alarm and because they're really eager to speechify and to organize and to provoke. 
Now, what's interesting about Albert uh, is that he he does talk in his speeches about they both talk about armed insurrection or armed, uh, you know, conflict. But then he denies that he was advocating violence when when he's being judged for the Haymarket incident incident. He denies it. So it's like, oh, that was just rhetoric. Someone like I really didn't mean it. But he said it so much that it was kind of hard to well uh, believe he didn't right. mean it. It is hard to to figure out. I mean, if you go back and look at the alarm, uh, certainly there are articles about the use of dynamite. There are exhortations for workers to learn how to use explosives. Lucy Parsons is very famous for an essay she wrote in the fall of 1884, it was published in the first issue of The Alarm, it was called Two Tramps. And at the very end, in italics, uh, she um, tells her readers, learn the use of explosives. So they they do adopt, it's a, a, it's a very radical posture. Um, Johann Most, who was a German anarchist, promoted this idea that uh, of uh, really an aggressive kind of violence, assassination, arson, murder, all these things were uh, justified. And what I think happened was that Albert and his comrades got caught up in this rhetoric, and they went out of their way even to impress upon the police and the editors of, of Chicago papers that somehow they were more powerful than they were, actually were. So I found instances of Albert, for instance, bragging to men he knew to be undercover police about owning explosives and looking forward to using them against the capitalists uh, someday. And, of course, these undercover police would go back and tell their superiors who then reported it to the newspapers. And, and Chicago in the mid-1880s was, you know, in a state of anxiety, tremendous anxiety and fear over the notion that these two armed groups, the radicals on the one hand and the authorities on the other, would really uh, kind of reignite a civil war of some kind. Now, they were, they were very... Uh, uh, Lucy was writing a lot, and Albert was... Uh, making a lot of speeches. And is this how they were making a living? Well, just barely. Um, she was a very talented seamstress. And when they first went to Chicago, she and she opened a seamstress shop and Albert worked as a printer. That was his skill. But later, after the uh, strike of 1877, where he played a prominent role as an agitator, he was blacklisted from the papers in the city and couldn't find work as a printer. He helped her with her seamstress business. But certainly the alarm, um, that newspaper was really always struggling for subscribers, for funds. They really lived hand to mouth, I think, uh, during a lot of this period. Which is interesting because, you know, I was looking to see what was their motivation, what was motivating them. And it, well, obviously, it didn't seem like it was money. No, no. I mean, it no. wasn't like they weren't, they were trying to make money or, yeah. and it wasn't so, and it's like, it's, but ideologically, it was, there were so many problems with what they were saying that I, I was trying to figure out what, that's why I, I concluded for, after reading your book that the, the, they were political performers and she would have done wonderfully in the theater if she, you know, uh, lived in a different yes. place at a different time. She would have been a, an actress. Well, absolutely. I, you know, these descriptions of her lectures are just fascinating. She's able to hold a crowd's attention for two hours and, or more. She's a very striking figure. She speaks very beautifully. She's eloquent. She has a lot of um, facts at her disposal. She, you know, her interaction with the crowds who are listening to her are fascinating. You know, she tells the men to put out their cigars and to give the ladies their seats. She tells the women to take their crying babies out of the hall because they're bothering her. She's a very... Um, self-possessed speaker. And, you know, a lot of observers just did not know what to make of her. Here she was on the stage holding forth. She would begin her speeches with the declaration, I am an anarchist, defying the authorities. 
and go on and talk about the injustices done to her husband and his comrades. You know, I think people who came to these lectures and expected, uh, you know, a broken down mother of two, she was a mother of two by this time, uh, so, people who expected her to uh, weep and plead for mercy for her husband, they were startled to find um, to the contrary, that this was a very um, uh, uh, outspoken and uh, eloquent person who could really provoke with her speech. You know, she could say things like, uh, you know, I would like to run the guillotine that chopped off the heads of capitalists. And, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, to me, that's a theater to me. That just sounds like it is. It's it is, but in a time and place where a lot of labor organizers were much more circumspect, and here I'm talking about not only uh, mainstream organizers, but also the socialists, you know, were quite appalled at her rhetoric, which they considered much too provocative. Mother Jones, Mary Harris Jones, the famous organizer, was very disapproving. She said, you know, people hear this awful rhetoric and then they taint the whole labor movement with the brush of anarchism and radicalism. So, you know, there were a lot of people who, who really disapproved, but I must say that for her audiences, they tended to love that kind of over the top rhetoric because they were not used to hearing it. And she denounced in such uncertain terms um, in, 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 in such, she denounced in such certain terms the um, the exploiters of labor. She uh, decried the growing inequality between the rich and poor. She called attention to uh, women seamstresses and child workers. She really tugged at the heartstrings of her listeners, who reacted accordingly. They they loved her, and in fact, there are great descriptions of her in the eighteen eighties interrupting a kind of staid labor meeting by striding down to the front of the hall and the workers standing and applauding. We want to hear what Lucy Parsons has to say because she does throw this whole um, kind of respectability uh, away and and she really embraces uh, very um, raw rhetoric, which again, for the time was unusual for many people in the labor movement, especially for a woman, I think. Um, the other thing that was really interesting to me was how they kind of played with the uh, the press, the police. Um, they kind of played with all, with these uh, these groups, like the press that was trying to, always coming to their meetings and trying to, looking for sensational stories and sensational li- lines, and they were ready to give it to them. Yes, and they actually did, I think, have a very symbiotic relationship with the Chicago press. Both of them loved to be interviewed by uh, reporters. Their door was always open. Some of the most fascinating material um, are the accounts of these interviews from reporters who uh, are struck on the one hand by this very um, violent rhetoric, and on the other hand by what seems to be a, a very uh, comfortable domestic life. You know, going to the apartment, seeing uh, the kids there. Uh, Lulu um, was born in 1881, and um, Albert Jr. in 1879. Uh, both of them came to very unhappy ends, I must say. But uh, for a while there, the the family seemed to be um, enjoying a certain kind of even bourgeois um, domesticity and comfort. That was, I think, partly because Lucy still was able to make some money uh, through her seamstress business. And she, of course, always looked very beautiful. She uh, always dressed in the very latest fashions herself. I thought that was interesting, too, that they had kind of a bourgeois kind of life, Otherwise, you know, and uh, let me talk about the children. Uh, They traveled a lot. They did speaking tours. Um, What happened to the children while their parents were very busy, you know, either speaking in Chicago, writing, going off to different locations to 
further yeah. their cause. Let's talk about what was the situation well, with their children. There are accounts of the kids by the mid eighties, you know, um, Albert Jr. is about six and Lulu's about four uh, of them being taken um, by their parents to late night meetings of uh, anarchists. Uh, there are descriptions of them going on, on Sunday afternoon picnics when um, the anarchists held forth on the shores of Lake Michigan. And then, as you say, Albert was gone a lot, um, speaking around the Midwest, especially and after he was executed, Lucy spent a great deal of time on the road as well. She even went to London in the fall of 1888, where she was greeted warmly by uh, the socialists in that city. And as far as I can sell, see, when the parents were out of town, the kids were taken care of by members of the community, comrades, no doubt. Uh, there is some suggestion that they were in um, very good homes, uh, loving homes, uh, unfortunately, Lulu died in uh, 1888, uh, I think from complications from scarlet fever. But her mother had been on the road a great deal before her death. Um, the story with Albert Jr. is really um, uh, unbelievable, in a, in, I think. Um, by 1899, Lucy Parsons was really... Uh, railing against American imperialism abroad. And she very much objected to the American war with Spain in Cuba and the Philippines. In fact, in the summer of 1899, she was standing on Chicago street corners uh, just denouncing this whole adventuresome, um, adventurism rather, uh, on the part of the United States. Well, one day that summer, her son, who by this time was 20, 21, he had um, graduated from high school. I think he was working as a clerk. He was, by all accounts, an upstanding young man. His mother had wanted him to carry on in his father's footsteps. She wanted him to bear the torch of anarchism after his father's death, and he certainly had other ideas. Anyway, he came home and he told his mother he was joining the army and he was going to ship off to the Philippines to fight with U.S. forces there. And uh, she became enraged. She took him to a local judge, uh, a judge of uh, what was called the asylum uh, court in Chicago. The judge at um, Lucy Parsons' urgings uh, declared Albert Jr. to be insane and remanded him to an insane asylum north of Chicago where he died 20 years later. Uh, and it's, you know, I just can't explain the gratuitous cruelty at work here. I know his mother did not want to be embarrassed. She didn't want to be humiliated publicly by her son joining the army after all she had said against it. But still, to have him committed, um, and as far as I can tell, she never visited him there. He suffered terribly. He died of tuberculosis, uh, I think in 1919. And it's just a very sad story. And I, I really am at a loss to fully explain it. Well, after Albert was uh, executed, her uh, Lucy's life changed dramatically. And at first it seemed like she was coming into her own. She was carrying the torch, but it seemed as time went on, uh, things were changing in Chicago. Um, the labor movement, just the whole industrial capitalism, everything's changing. And um, she, it, she begins to uh, seem a little pitiful and sort of grasping for attention, trying to hold on to the dream when everybody else has gone on. Yes, I mean, she remained, I think, mired in this notion of a cooperative commonwealth, these trade unions that would... Um, really transform American society and replace the wage system with cooperation. That was just not a realistic proposition by 1900 or so. And uh, yet she, she really held on to these beliefs. She didn't seem to um, keep track of some of the major changes in Chicago at the time, the beginning of a consumer culture, commercialized leisure, these kinds of things that were attracting the attention of the laboring classes. She did not write about these developments. I'm not sure that she understood them. She was um, 
by the teens and the 20s, I think, um, regarded as something of a cultural artifact. I describe um, tours organized uh, among Northwestern University students who would tour the city and look at some of the radical haunts of Chicago and, and in the course of the day meet with Lucy Parsons, who by that time was in her 70s. And she would expound upon the old, the good old days of labor radicalism. So she does, um, she searches for some kind of relevance. She is in the 1920s giving speeches in Washington Square, which was called at the time Bug House Square, where people would go and stand on soapboxes and, and declaim on any number of subjects. So she was very much a presence in Chicago. And in fact, she spoke at the Chicago May Day celebration um, in 1938 and uh, was still making public appearances, although she was very frail, uh, up to a few months before she died in a house fire in March of 1942. Now, she also ran into some other uh, radicals that she did not approve of, which were the, the free love advocates, the uh, the ones that were railing against marriage and all that. And she was totally opposed to that. But even though she was not necessarily the most outstanding in terms of middle class morality. <laughs> no. And in fact, um, she feuded with Emma Goldman for one. Emma Goldman, of course, calling herself a, an anarchist, but Emma Goldman's uh, anarchism very different from Lucy Barson's. Emma Goldman embracing the liberation of sexual and artistic impulses and writing quite freely about, you know, the evils of monogamy and the need for, um, uh, you know, uh, men and women to take multiple lovers. Well, the irony was that Lucy Parsons retreated into kind of prim Victorian womanhood stance and wrote that this was uh, outrageous, that the family was the key to uh, any revolutionary society. Uh, how could these anarchists defile the movement by advocating such outrageous things? And at one point, Emma Goldman said, well, uh, Lucy Parsons, of all people, should not be lecturing anybody about um, monogamy and its virtues. <laughs> and that, that was because she herself had had a series of lovers by that time and, uh, again, was presenting a very different persona to, to the public. Why was she, why was she dubbed a goddess of anarchy? Who did, somebody wrote that. Yes. Um, And um, people have asked me about that because anarchists famously say, no gods, no masters. And so uh, how could there be a goddess of anarchy? It doesn't make any sense. Well, a couple of things. One is it was the Chicago Citizens Association, which was a group of businessmen who called her the goddess of anarchy, uh, kind of sarcastically. Um, but I think, in fact, she would have liked this title because the word goddess suggests, uh, you know, physical beauty, also power, influence over men and women. So I don't think that Lucy Parsons would object to the title goddess of anarchy. Well, she was a fascinating person. I was wondering, the other thing that hit me besides a political performer was the uh, the idea, I know you don't use those words and you don't really do a lot of, of trying to figure out what's motivating her, but her and Albert both seem to be individualists to the core. Yeah, well, they are. For all their talk of cooperation and association, they had some very strong egos. <laughs> And they uh, were constantly feuding, fighting with comrades. They were constantly splintering off from one group, forming another group. Uh, yes, it is true that um, for all their talk of cooperation, they really found it difficult to cooperate with other people. And I think that was a larger story of the uh, radical left during this period, you know, that drive for ideological purity, it's my way, or um, the highway, as it were, uh, really did not serve them well. So what can we learn from uh, Lucy Parsons' life? What should the uh, listener or the reader take away? What lessons does she have for us? Well, 
I think for one thing, she should be remembered as a really um, courageous advocate of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. She showed incredible courage in dodging police, in uh, holding her ground, in speaking uh, to large groups when the authorities wanted to shut her down. I think that's uh, part of it. She... um, I think her power during her lifetime was that of an orator. And unfortunately, we have no recordings of her speeches. We, we can't hear her. And I think that's one of the reasons why people have forgotten about her. Also, because she was so, um, so eager uh, to hide her origins. You know, Emma Goldman wrote a, a long autobiography called Living My Life. So we know a lot about Emma Goldman from her birth on, Lucy Parsons never wrote about herself. And she wrote a lot about her husband and she spoke a lot about the growing inequality uh, in America. But she said at one point, no one really cares who I am. They only care about my message. But I think uh, she was wrong about that. I think we, we very much care about who she was and where she came from. Well, thank you, Jacqueline. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Lily. And thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.